Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've got to be able to fail, and you've got to be able to push the boundaries uh, and, uh, and go over the boundary, and then go, oh, no, that's, that's a bit too much. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to poet, producer and co-founder of Baby Cow Productions, Henry Normal. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they used to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Having performed poetry at literature festivals and beyond around the UK, Henry Normal set up Baby Cow Productions in 1999 with Steve Coogan, where he exec produced and script edited many of the company's shows. Highlights include the feature film Philomena, Gavin and Stacey, Moon Boy, Marion and Jeff, Nighty Night, The Mighty Boosh, Red Dwarf, and of course, Alan Partridge. Since retiring in April 2016, Henry has written and performed seven BBC Radio 4 shows, A Normal Family, A Normal Life, A Normal Love, A Normal Creativity, A Normal Nature, A Normal Universe, and A Normal Communication. These shows are a combination of comedy, poetry, and stories, and are available on BBC Sounds. In June 2017, Henry was honoured with a BAFTA for services to the TV industry, and he was recently given an honorary doctorate of letters by Nottingham Trent University and another by Nottingham University, and he even has a beer and bus named after him in Nottingham. So as you can imagine, this was a fascinating conversation. Henry explains his approach to creativity and describes how he's managed to find a sense of balance over the years between being a poet, writer, TV and film producer and script editor whilst he was also simultaneously running the very successful Baby Cow Productions. I could have listened to Henry talk for ages. He's just got so much insight on the creative process. It was just great hearing some of these stories about how uh, he came together to collaborate with the likes of Steve Coogan, Carolina Hearn, and so many more talented comedians and writers. So this is a really great one. And uh, remember, if you like this episode, if you're enjoying Balancing Acts, please do rate and review the podcast on Apple 
it really goes a long way to getting the series discovered by new listeners and it helps go up the old Apple podcast chart. So all you have to do is go onto Apple, type in balancing acts and then leave a lovely glowingly positive review and do your nice good deed for the day. Oh, and also if you want to get uh, my weekly newsletter, which includes latest podcast episodes and sometimes short stories and articles written by me and other fun stuff, then you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is on my website, Steve Whiteley, W-H-I-T-E-L-E-Y.co. And now without further ado, over to Henry Normal. Perfect. So are you, you currently at your residence in Brighton? Uh, no, we've moved from Brighton. We've moved oh, have you? to Airlight, uh, which is the other side of uh, Hastings. Okay. How are you finding that move? Um, well, uh, we moved just before Christmas, so okay. uh, it was um, uh, not the best time to move. I would never no. say to anybody, because you can't get workmen over Christmas. So if the eating doesn't work, which it didn't, yeah. um, uh, you're on your own. Okay. So was there lots of warm coats then during that period of time? Uh, yeah, we um, laid in bed with um, uh, very warm bodies, but very cold heads. Right. So, yeah, never uh, fun. A, a little like a, like an Arctic roll, but sideways. Yeah. yeah. You were in Brighton for many years. Yes, uh, for 24 years at least, because my, my son was 23 and uh, we were certainly there um, when he was born. So uh, okay. 24, maybe maybe sort of 25, I don't know. And so was it, was it nice now to start afresh somewhere new? Um, well, yeah, new adventure, always good. Uh, yeah. Good for creativity if you, uh, um, if you change your surroundings, even if you move your chair from one side of the room to the other, uh, you get a different point of view. Uh, I always remember somebody saying uh, that um, creativity is uh, about alignment, that you uh, you see things um, uh, and match them together, and you can only see them from either that moment in time, uh, as everything's moving, we're all in flux, uh, or um, if you're in a certain position. So to, to change your position, it changes your chances of creativity. That's a really interesting um, idea, an interesting view of creativity. Have you found that you've done that over your career in terms of your approach to creativity? Have you always tried new approaches depending on the project or has it been a sort of very natural, fluid process? I think so. The problem is that you're always competing against yourself yeah. uh, and you don't want to become a tribute band to yourself, do you? Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You don't yeah, just yeah. be doing all your old hits uh, and end up like Duran Duran or something, sort of uh, everybody going, oh, they don't look like they used to. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You want you want to you want to keep moving. I mean, uh, you get a, an artist like uh, say Nick Cave, uh, and you look at the, the albums uh, one after another, and the, there's a progression. So I think I think with any creativity, um, whether it's an episode of a series, or whether it's a, a different series, or whether it's something new, or, or even a new medium, you want to try and find some way of. Uh, uh, exploring it. Um, so to me, it's always a um, uh, things are a start of a new adventure uh, and, and then you you explore. Um, the, the idea that you know what's coming up, oh, oh God, that's awful. Yes. That's the one good thing about death. You, you, it, you, you don't know, know what's around the corner. You, you don't know what's coming up. So yeah. who yeah. knows? It might be your most creative part. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope so. So, and, and if you always found collaboration to be key in that, 
Yeah, I know because obviously you, you've written on a lot of your your scripted projects and script edited, etc. Do you prefer to go away and write on your own, or have you enjoyed the collaboration process going back and forth? I think I think um, they've both got their benefits, uh, and um, uh, with the poetry, obviously, um, that's very much something that uh, is just between me. Um, and uh, the reader or the listener, if I'm if I'm talking, yeah. um, uh, so there's something very pure about that. And, and uh, I started off as a poet, and I started off as a writer. So that idea of the um, the one-to-one conversation, and in some ways, you're actually talking to yourself. So basically, it's a conversation with yourself, and very often creativity, and then um, people earwig. And, and eavesdrop into that. Mm. Uh, um, so that's quite interesting. Now, with collaboration, um, it dilutes it, but then in, in a way, um, it makes something that neither of you would have done on your own. So uh, I wrote with uh, Steve Coogan uh, uh, quite a bit and uh, with uh, Carolina Hearn, um, uh, Craig Cash, um, and uh, Dave Gorman uh, on the um mrs merton show and on uh, the royal family so uh, i think on all those occasions um very often somebody would think of a joke and then somebody else would think of a, a joke that's just a little bit uh, better yeah. uh, and then you'd revise it and uh, own it down and what you'd get at the end was not necessarily the first thing that was discussed um, and if you're doing a storyline, if, if you're on your own and doing a storyline, um, it can be quite linear. Whereas if you are arguing with somebody and they say, no, no, we could turn this way and we could turn that, then you often get a storyline um, that uh, has more twists and turns. And, uh, and um, you know, you're, you're all, all the while you write a new line, you're making a new decision. Mm-hmm. And if there's two people making that decision, um, then uh, you, you're likely to uh, to get different decisions. So being open-minded plays a big part in terms of being open to suggestions from other people and not being too proud and, you know, uh, stuck oh, in your own. No, no point in being proud if you're going to be uh, with somebody. You've got to be, have a situation. And uh, uh, luckily, uh, um, everybody that I've worked with, uh, we've been in this situation where you can fail. Yes. Uh, because you can't be funny 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year. Nobody can be funny that, that no, nobody's that funny, even, even the best of the best. Yeah. Um, so you've got to be able to fail and you've got to be able to push the boundaries uh, and, uh, and go over the boundary and then go, Oh no, that's, that's a bit too much. Um, so there's no point in, in having any uh, preconceptions of yourself. Um, I think uh, there's something very nice about sharing um, the creativity with someone and, um, Obviously, once you make something um, like a film or a television, it's not just your co-writer that you're making it with. You're making it with the director. You're making it with the the people who do costume, the people who do um, makeup, the people who do um, lighting. Uh, You know, everybody has has an impact. I'll give you an example. When we first made uh, The Royal Family, the first episode, we went in to see the the set and uh in our heads it was um the house that you see uh that um that you saw on the program but that wasn't how the set was to start off with um instead of the door being straight to the outside the door was at the back in a sort of um like fraser 
the television show from America um, with a little landing. Uh, um, as somebody had thought that was a good idea that people could come in that way. But of course, that wouldn't be true to life. That wouldn't be true to what we are. We were trying to write a very true uh, representation of working class life. Um, also, the the house, uh, if you can remember the house on the royal family, was um, a living room and a dining room um, knocked into one. So the wall yeah. was knocked out. So we went in and we said, well, where's the bit that juts out? The, where the wall used to be you always have a, you always leave a bit that juts out and that wasn't there so we asked we didn't do any filming the first day we asked for them to to build that so that when you saw it you'd think that was authentic so um you're in the hands of lots of creative people um, i mean a film like philomena you, you know you're talking 200 creative people have, having a uh, an impact on that mm. so uh, there's no point in being too precious uh, obviously, if there's something that's needed that um, that you need to catch, then uh, you know um, it, it's great to catch it early. Um, I, I saw the film Parole Officer, which I wrote with Steve. Yeah. I saw the masks that they uh, were using for the robbery uh, after they'd filmed it. Um, if I'd have seen them before, I would have changed them. Right. Uh, in my mind's eye, when we wrote it, um, they were sort of um, grotesque in a sort of um, uh, a Christian Bell Batman sort of way. Um, whereas when they actually filmed it, they're sort of uh, play school masks. So I wasn't I wasn't very happy. They were supposed to serve a particular joke because they were insects. Right. And they were supposed to serve the joke of her popping her head out and her actually looking like an insect, uh, which she didn't. She just looked like a primary school teacher. So uh, that's not an ideal situation once you see that on screen. No, and and so so uh, say so the getting the um, the creativity that you're hoping for. Um, yeah. Through uh, even on radio, I mean, uh, you know, you, you can't do radio on your own. You need a producer, so you need a good producer. Luckily, I've got uh, um, probably the best, uh, which is uh, Carl uh, and um, uh, Carl Cooper, and uh, I totally uh, know that when we record it and when we edit it, um, it's going to be the best of the best. Um, but, you know, you you really do need to have a good relationship, uh, even with just the one person, because you're very much in their hands. Um, even a book publisher, if you're publishing a book, you yeah. want to make sure that, you know, um, it doesn't look cheap at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 uh, and the cover is... Um, I had one book cover... Um, that I don't like. Uh, I had a book with Blood Axe. Now, Blood Axe are a very well-known and uh, um, distinguished uh, book company. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of power because uh, I was only uh, in my late 20s at the time. And um, and they said they wanted this cover. And, uh, and so I went along with it. Uh, and uh, I ate it. Uh, and it's the worst cover I've, I've had about 30 books out. And it's the only one that I ate. And right. it's with the biggest, biggest publisher. I see. I see. Sometimes, so, sometimes, sometimes it's about the power structure. Yeah. Uh, so I'd uh, definitely try to um, retain some degree of power on your own creativity if you can. That's what's beautiful about poetry. Um, you know, if, if I uh, write and read a poem, um, I have total control. Yeah. With, if you make a film, you've got partial control. How was that transition for you going back to 
starting off obviously as a performer and poet and then setting up Baby Cow in 1999. Was that a difficult transition to go from being just, I guess, purely creative and solely working on your own material to then stepping into the role, which is, I guess, partly business, but obviously also very creative, and then sharing that creativity and the project with others was that a challenging transition? Well, it, well, it was over a, over a long period of time, and it was a, a incremental. So uh, I it, see. It okay, seemed, it, it seemed like a lot of steps. So, if I take you back, uh, I, I was an insurance broker when I was twenty. Okay. So I know how an office works, yes. uh, and I know how you have to uh, um, control the uh, uh, expenditure. So uh, when I finally got to to running Baby Cow. Um, the training I had uh, as an insurance broker, um, which might you might think is a million miles from making comedy, yeah, uh, was actually useful in running the uh, running the business. Um, when I got into uh, to writing and performing, uh, it was very much uh, myself, uh, and uh, all I had to worry about was making people laugh mm. uh, and getting booked uh, and paying the rent, uh, and uh, for that lasted a good ten years of me trying to, um, you know, get noticed, um, learn my craft, uh, because it's no good getting noticed if you're not actually any good when, you, uh, when you're noticed. Um, and then uh, there's a great sense of community, uh, I find, amongst creative people. And uh, I um, started off in Nottingham, went to Chesterfield, where I met lots of uh, really creative people, in lots of different art forms, which is great because it makes you think in different ways. You know, if mm. you're talking to a sculptor, uh, and you're talking to a, a visual artist, um, it makes you think a little bit in, you know, because we're all dealing with images. So they're just dealing with images in a different way. So so that was a great grounding. And then I went to Manchester and I, I met uh, Steve Coogan. Uh, he was only 19 when I met him. Wow. And I was 29, so I was okay. 10 years older than him. Uh, Caroline Hearn. Um, but lots of people like uh, Linda Smith uh, coming over from Sheffield and uh, Frank Skinner coming up from uh, Birmingham. There was a sort of a northern, uh, um, I won't say circuit, because, because uh, there weren't really comedy clubs. But um, there was a, 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 a good deal of people that were trying to start off. Dave Gorman uh, was very young at the time. Um, John Thompson, all trying to start off. And because we all knew each other and because we all uh, was on at the gigs, then you'd often, you know, drive in a car together to a, to a gig. Yeah. Um, and if you had a, a bit of a project, like if I had a radio show or something, I'd get them on my radio show. So um, they're just repeating uh, a show I did called in, uh, 28 years ago called Encyclopedia Poetica. Uh, and if you look at the guests on it, you've got Lem Sisse, who's now a big... Um, uh, poet, international poet, yeah. uh, who was about 19 at the time, um, uh, and Attila the stockbroker, uh, who uh, I think has always been about 300 years old. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, the, so it was very much that sense of community and everybody getting everybody else to work on their shows. Um, I went up to Edinburgh, uh, which is where you were told to go, because none, none of the TV would basically come to Manchester or if you were doing a gig in uh, um, Wigan, nobody was going to come to Wigan to, to see you. So you had to go to Edinburgh. Mm. So I did a show with uh, Atty Aridge, who was a good friend of mine, who was, uh, you probably know from Red Dwarf. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was the same year Steve went up and uh, Frank and lots of other people went up for the first year. And um, I was offered a television show. So strangely enough, I was offered a television show before 
the rest of them uh, in our uh, little community. Um, and so I got everybody on my show. So I asked for Frank to be on the show. It's called Packet of Three. And uh, I, I got uh, Steve on as a, doing his first national um, character uh, comedy okay. and um uh, i got everybody you know uh, dave gorman uh, was on there doing some poetry strangely enough uh, and um we did a series of that uh, and then caroline um was given the mrs merton show and so she uh, asked if i would come and write the mrs merton show so that great sense of community with every get everybody uh, getting everybody together and uh, uh, dave gorman and uh, Craig Cash both wrote on uh, on that series as well. And when Steve uh, got given a, sh a show, he asked me to write on that. So I was writing both for Caroline and for Steve at the same time. So I, I'd work weekends and uh, night, dinner times, uh, first thing in the morning. I was the only one with a computer, okay. uh, uh, which was an old Amstrad at the time, uh, um, uh, which uh, when it printed out made the... Like it was, it was like being in uh, World War Two. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but uh, so I, I was, um, I say I was a little bit older than everyone else. So I was sort of the grown up, and, and I did all the script editing and uh, tidying up and uh, presenting. Um, but uh, certainly Caroline and uh, Craig themselves uh, were the drivers uh, of a lot of the creativity because you know they'd uh, um, they'd got to a certain level and uh, they're both brilliant comics it sounds like you you're already doing that kind of role in, in terms of the producing role but were you at this point the i guess the equivalent of the designated driver pitching projects then to broadcasters that you were collaborating on no i, w I wouldn't say that you know in terms of the uh, um the processing of the script uh, i was yes the the designated driver the, the responsible adult yes uh, um and uh but uh, the creativity was very much, uh, you know, everybody had a pitch in and uh, and certainly uh, um, working for Caroline and, and uh, Steve at the time, you know, they they were, you know, they were the, the, the people behind themselves, if you like. People always wonder who, who the brains is. Well, they were the brains. So, you know, we were just uh, uh, in on the adventure. And... Uh, uh, I like to think sometimes in my uh, more, more romantic moments that uh, uh, I was like the conciliary uh, uh, to, uh, to to Steve's godfather. Uh, um, okay. So uh, there was um, there's a lovely uh, atmosphere at the, at the time, but I'll say working for both of them, I, I was a little bit stretched. And um, so when I'd finished the Royal Family, we made uh, Mrs. Merton and Malcolm uh, a series. And um, Steve uh, asked me uh, if I'd write a film with him, which uh, was the parole officer. And so I had to choose between doing the second series of the Royal Family or doing a film. And of course, I've always wanted to write a film. Uh, the other thing, as we're coming on to uh, work balance, uh, work and family balance, um, I, I had a child on the way. Uh, okay. um, in uh, in Brighton, and Steve uh, had a, uh, a kid, a young uh, daughter in Brighton. So the idea of working in Brighton rather than commuting to uh, London or Manchester seemed uh, a good choice. Mm. So rather than choose to write the second series of the Royal Family, I chose to write the film with Steve. 
And whilst we were writing that, Steve said, well, it's ridiculous as um, commuting to London or, or Manchester. Why don't we set up a company in Brighton? So that's uh, when we set up Baby Cow and the officers were originally in Brighton. So that progression, as you're talking about, from being a solo performer came over a period of uh, um, having my own show, uh, working on uh, Steve and Caroline's shows, and then uh, getting to the stage where we'd done enough that people would trust us to actually um, uh, get more involved uh, and actually make programmes itself. Um, now, people are giving you millions of pounds to make uh, television programmes. So um, it's not the sort of thing you might do to a 16-year-old. So you have, to, you, have yeah. to, you have to have a certain degree of experience in the business for somebody to trust you with, uh, you know, I mean, a, a show can cost three million pounds. So mm. uh, somebody to trust you with that sort of money. Um, so the progression was steady. Uh, and um, uh, we, uh, the first program we made was uh, Human Remains with um, Julia Davis. Yeah, and, brilliant show. Uh, and uh, Rob Bryden. Yeah. And uh, it, it won um, RTS awards. So um, we must have done all right. It sounds like then it, it was sort of a natural progression for you to, to get to the point where you, you opened Baby Cow as opposed to it being something that was an ambition from early off. You know, some people say, right, my, my end goal is to set up a production company and be my own boss. Whereas you kind of, it, it seemed to happen in a very sort of happy, accidental manner. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody um, as a kid thinks I, I'm going to run a business. Uh, yeah, uh, that okay. would be a very strange kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I got into the business because of, um, uh, I would say, three or four people. Okay. Uh, initially, um, Jack Benny. Uh, uh, I saw Jack Benny on the Dean Martin show, yeah. and um, he was in a tuxedo. And uh, I, I was um, uh, in a council estate and my mum had died. Uh, she died when I was 11 in a car accident. Uh, so we didn't have much money, five kids uh, and a dad that worked at Rally. And uh, he came in this tuxedo and Dean Martin was on the phone and uh, they nodded to each other. And uh, Jack Benny um, got down on the floor, didn't sit on the sofa and started playing dice on his own. And uh, I'd never seen a, a grown-up do this. This was grown-ups around where I was. They, they went to work, they came home, uh, they watched the telly and they did the pools. Yeah. That, that, was, that was it, you know, and, and hoped that something would happen. Um, uh, so the playfulness of that, I thought, that's the world I want to be in. Yeah, right. So if you'd have asked me around that time, what do I want to be? I want to be Jack Benny. Yeah, uh, the thing. And in my head, when I was playing uh, uh, um, Glossop or uh, Kingsland or Aberdeen, I was Jack Benny. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know this, uh, uh, but in my head, that, yeah. that's that, that's um, that's the world that I wanted to. Play. So uh, again, the the sort of the New York Jewish uh, uh, comedy of the thirties uh, and forties uh, was very much a. Um, a family thing, you know, the, uh, I don't know whether, you know, uh, the, uh, Jack Benny was asked to be one of the Marx brothers, even though he wasn't I didn't know that. A, a brother. Okay. Uh, um, because there was very much a sense of community there uh, yeah. uh, amongst the, amongst the comics. So I love that. And I was drawn to that as well. Yeah. So certainly when, when I got involved uh, in, uh, in performing uh, to me, part of the uh, attraction was, uh, you know, the sort of uh, uh, the community of other um, uh, artists and um, the the other uh, people that uh, were uh, 
very much involved uh, in my early thoughts were uh, Spike Milligan. Uh, I'm yeah. doing a, a radio show on, uh, I've, I've recorded on Tuesday, uh, Great Lives for uh, BBC Radio 4, uh, and I chose Spike Milligan as, as the person to, to do the show about. Um, uh, and so, again, in my head, um, if I was uh, uh, as uh, much of a genius as he is, which I'm not, uh, uh, I, you know, the, the idea of being something like Spike Milligan. Now, he worked in all sorts of different medium. Uh, so he, he did brilliant books, uh, he did poems, uh, he did um, uh, radio shows and he, he did television shows. Did a few films, not any big films, but he, he did some uh, small films. Um, and the the other person would be Roger McGough, who was uh, a poet and still is a poet. Um, and uh, as you know, sort of consistently over the years, um, uh, invented um, uh, and explored the the idea of accessible poetry. When you reached the point of deciding to retire, did you have it in your mind that you were going to focus purely on your poetry? Was that the the reason why you decided to retire? Because you wanted to get back to performing sort of full time. Well, um, I'd made over 450 television programs yeah. uh, and over a dozen Just a few. Uh, films. So so it did strike me that if I made 451, nobody'd know the difference. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you, you know, I must have peaked at some point uh, um, <laughs> and uh, get, get in four uh, Oscar nominations for Philomena was probably the highlight and, and seems to be at the moment the highlight of Baby Cow. Um, so it seemed like a good time. But of course, on the home front, uh, I have an autistic child. Yes. Uh, um, and uh, uh, Johnny is 23 now. Um, uh, his mum, uh, Angela, um, has worked hard over the years to uh, uh, bring out the best in him. And um, partly, uh, I wanted to spend more time at home, um, both with uh, my wife, who's very beautiful, uh, and uh, my son. Uh, oh, I love, uh, and uh, although he is beautiful as well, I should, I should mention, yeah, uh, and uh, and and my own, uh, uh, which I paid for uh, and didn't get to see. <laughs> right, uh, it's very strange. Um, nobody ever says at the end of the end of the life, I, I wish I'd spend more time at work. Yeah. So uh, it did strike me that uh, that that would be a, a good time, and um, I, I I managed to um, work hard enough, uh, um, and. Uh, managed to to build the company up enough that I could afford to, which is the other thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would like to retire, but, um, you know, you've you've got to make sure it's practical. Sure. Do you miss it at all? I miss the people because yeah. uh, I had some great friends uh, that I could see every day. Uh, yeah. and occasionally I speak to, to people yeah. uh, and uh, occasionally people pop around um, or we meet up. Uh, um, but to actually... Uh, see a group of people every day and have a common purpose. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a bit like being in the trenches. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, there's some great camaraderie that uh, that I miss. Yeah. But uh, there are the upside is that I get to spend uh, a bit more time on the beach, uh, even if it's cold, which it is at the minute. Mm. So we're, we're only five minutes from pet level, uh, which is where they filmed. Um, the video for Ashes to Ashes, and I think the the uh, the bulldozer that was behind him is still there. <laughs> so you can you can go and do the video yourself. I think I might have to do that. Are you currently touring at the moment? Because I knew you had a tour lined up. 
for this well, year? Well, yes, I, I, I did a... Um, uh, I was supposed to be touring originally, uh, just as COVID hit. That yeah. was great comic timing. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, they put it off. And I actually took a chance last uh, autumn and uh, did uh, sixteen dates. Okay. Uh, and then I've got twenty-two dates starting on the tenth of February in Sudbury. Okay. Uh, um, obviously, uh, it's good to start in Sudbury. Yeah. Um. Uh, the. Yeah, 22 days. Now, I'm hoping that um, COVID uh, and uh, Omicron is the latest one. You know the next one's Pi, don't you? Yes, yeah, I've got that noted down. So, uh, um, uh, you know, whenever Pi comes out, like the, yeah. I do like a Pi, but probably not that one. Not uh, that one, no. So, so uh, I, um, you know, I'm hoping to do those. And uh, it's basically me um, doing some poems. I, t- I pick a theme for for each show. So I, I, had, I do a radio show um, every eight months. And the last one was about uh, ageing, uh, according okay. to normal ageing. Uh, make it nice and simple. And yeah. uh, the next one's about history and how uh, history um, reflects on our everyday lives because people don't tend to think it does. But if you think about it, we define ourselves um, by history. And now we define ourselves, it reflects how we act. Uh, so um, history does um, enter into your decision-making every day. Yeah, very much so. How do you think um, that's informed how we've been acting over the last couple of years in terms of this pandemic? Uh, well, we, we've got a, an history in this country uh, and a perceived history of, uh, of revolt, which is mm. uh, not bad. And uh, we, we're healthy uh, individualists uh, within the group. Um, if you think of places like uh, uh, China, uh, which yeah. have a different history, um, the, the, the idea of um, uh, individual thought uh, of, of self um, is, is less uh, to the fore. Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons, I think, why, um, despite our education system, we have so many inventors. Uh, because people uh, are able to think differently and uh, we have a very neurodiverse uh, um, population. Um, uh, But also it causes problems. So, uh, yes, I I think we define ourselves as as a nation of uh, uh, free individual thinkers Um, and therefore you have to allow for uh, um, that thought process when it comes to um, everybody doing the right thing. Yeah, and everyone, um, I guess, having the freedom to make their own decisions and what they feel is the right approach, and and, and, and you, you, you and I, you and I might agree or disagree on uh, um, the logic of uh, of uh, some of the things like wearing masks and the uh, the logic of uh, uh, getting a a, a jab, uh, um, and however obvious we might think it is somebody might uh, have a different point of view yeah. um, because as I say, you know, if we all thought the same, that would be very strange uh, yeah. um, given our history. Yes, indeed. So you said you've done sort of 16 dates last year, you were performing yeah. live. How was that process to go back on the road? Was it something you enjoyed? Do you like being on the road and being in amongst it and performing? Obviously you enjoy performing, but just that feeling of just performing at different dates subsequently. Do you know, I, I love performing. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, I, I, I do like people uh, mm. and I like interaction with people. And yeah. um, um, I, I, it's a strange thing. You, uh, I, I, like most poets, I like my solitude. But then, yes. I, and this, this question you were talking about, about balance. Um, so I like periods when uh, it's just me on a beach uh, with a paper and pencil. And then I like other periods where uh, I'm surrounded by people and we're having a laugh. Yeah. Uh, um, so um, it's quite a nice uh, sort of controlled way of um, uh, of expressing your creativity, being on stage um, as a solo act. Uh, so, so I uh, go onto the stage and uh, do probably uh, about. 50 minutes uh, and then a, a break and then another 50 minutes um and um it's uh during that period um i don't think about the past and i don't think about the future what i think about is the present yes um and it mirrors to me the joy i had when i was a kid and i'd play football right and whilst you're playing football you're you're essentially dancing yeah you're using your body and you're enjoying the use of your body and um, I think there's something similar uh, in, in that way that, that you're connected with the present uh, mm. um, when you're performing. Yes, very much so. Just getting into that zone, being there. I did stand up for uh, three years and I haven't performed since the start of the pandemic. But there's uh, the odd moment if I'd look. Uh, I always seem to focus on the angry face in the audience, you know, with their arms <laughs> crossed. Yes. I couldn't get away from that. Yeah. And then sort of that would just take me out of it. And I could feel myself getting angry in response, but then just trying to have to stay present. You know, you know you've got to think the best of people. I, I, I did a show in uh, um, Nottingham, yeah, where, which is where I'm from. And I had 200 people. Uh, it was a, a place was uh, full. And uh, I performed. And I performed for about 50 minutes. And I got to uh, um, the, 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 the one poem that is in my opinion the best poem in the show okay uh, and it's about my son and uh and uh, it's a very serious poem and uh i got about four or five lines into it and it's uh it's about 30 30 lines long yeah and somebody got up and walked out and it was silent All right because it's a serious poem and yeah, so yeah. i've got 199 people looking at me and one person walking down some steps, walking along the front and walking out the door. Now, so I've done about 50 minutes. So I, I'd hope that by 50 minutes that you like me, because if you're not, you've had a, a rough 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, so I'm thinking, I, I'm sure you can allow me a minute to, to do this one poem. And um, and so that plagued me over, over the uh, uh, over the half time break. I'm thinking, oh my god, you know, is it the particular poem? Is it, it, it? Are they taking objection to it? Is there because my son's autistic? Is there something about other right. autistic, or have they got a kid that's autistic, or you know? So I'm I'm thinking about uh, that, and then uh, the second half, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I I carried on, and uh, you know, uh, sort of. But all the while, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking. This, you know, everybody's laughing and, you know, and we're having a good time and uh, yeah. um, everything seems to be working and that, uh, and get to the end and everybody's happy and, and I, I go out and, uh, and I still, you know, two weeks later, my sister, uh, who was at the gig, uh, says to me, oh, you, that, then that lad who walked out, he was sat in front of me. 
he'd been holding his bladder for the last 10 minutes. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. And, and his girlfriend was telling him not to go, and he finally went out. I said, why didn't you tell me that at half time? Yeah, yeah. And then I want to, I've been worrying for te- two weeks. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, um, we, can, so we can tell ourselves all kinds of stories when we're on stage about the behaviour of different audience members. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. Yeah, and but it, it, sometimes it's, it's it's nothing to do with you. I, yeah. I was on. Uh, I, I did a gig with um, a Sheffield band called Digby's Drill. Uh, um, this is I'm going back thirty years now, okay. uh, and they're a really heavy sort of uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, punky um, band with. Uh, the, I think they were one of the first first people to use uh, computer reels in in the sound, and uh, a great band. And and I used to go on and do some jokes beforehand, and. Um, there was a bloke kept shouting and shouting and shouting. Uh, and this was at uh, um, Brighton before I'd moved to Brighton at the Zap Club. Okay. And it's a big, long club. And so you can't see past the first couple of rows and people are stood up and it's dark. I was just shouting and shouting and shouting. I'm thinking, you're not even giving me a chance. You know, uh, I'm down here. I'm, I'm in front of a punk gig. Uh, I'm, my name's Henry Normal. Uh, you know, I'm obviously not you know, uh, that aggressive or, or that, you know, I'm trying to uh, entertain. Anyway, I did me a set, it was about 20 minutes, and um, I went back and this bloke was still shouting uh, and and I, I got past all the people and I looked on the floor and there was a semi-naked bloke on the floor, obviously out of his head, shouting. And I could have been his mum on, on the stage. It yeah. wouldn't have mattered to him. So it was nothing to do with me. Yeah, yeah. Whatsoever. And so, uh, in in a way, when you're performing, you've got to you've got to have that sort of understanding that that um, you know uh, if you if you're next to the toilet door or the mic doesn't work or whatever, you know uh, it doesn't reflect on you as a, a comedian. Yeah, you just have to do the best you can. Yeah, yeah. I always remember uh, um, uh, seeing Jeremy Hardy on stage once, and uh, um, uh, halfway through his uh, his performance. A cat walked across the stage. And of course, everybody's attention went to the cat. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in turn, what he was talking about, nobody could remember. Right. Uh, and uh, and he knelt down, he picked the cat up and he gave it a stroke. And he said, um, I'm supposed to be doing a monologue, not a catalogue. <laughs> uh, which was a brilliant a little ad lib. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he obviously sussed the idea that you you just got to go with it. It's not, yeah. you know... Uh, um, you know, the things happen in the world. Yeah, that's a very good approach to take. I mean, one that probably that's what you develop over time, having done as many shows and performed as much as you have. In terms of your your radio series, I know you combine comedy and and music and your your poems. How was that writing process for you? Did you know before you even started developing these shows that that's what you wanted to do? You wanted to be an amalgamation of all these various things. Uh, and if so, how was the writing process for you for that? Uh, yes, I did uh, know before I started. What I wanted to do was, see, I, I've always thought that uh, comedy uh, 
is works best when it it informs uh, and uh, and and it uh, adds seasoning to something. Comedy on its own uh, is a bit like sugar, uh, and you wouldn't eat sugar on its own. Uh, but if if you're uh, telling a story uh, like we uh, did with uh, Steve's um, uh, shows, um, then you can tell a story. It might be a love story, it might be a, a story about companionship, it might be a story about getting old, and, and you put comedy into it. Then yeah. it makes the journey and it makes the story better. Um, and in my radio shows, I wanted to have a theme for each one. Uh, and to explore the theme and, and talk about the theme and use the comedy as a way of saying, all right, there's going to be some serious bits in here, but it's still going to be entertaining. But for me, in a way, part of the joy of it is that the the comedy helps package the serious bits. Yes. Uh, and if I did no serious bits in the show, it wouldn't be the same for me. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be worth my while doing them. Was it quite a cathartic experience in terms of within your shows, you're talking about the experience of having an autistic son and the challenges that have gone with that. Did you find it quite therapeutic in that respect? Have you found that over uh, Yes, but it's not, it's not just about my son, about anything. I say the last one was about ageing and, uh, you know, I'm 65 now. And yeah. I'd like to say I'm a pensioner, but the, uh, the government's bamboozled me uh, by moving it back. Yeah. Uh, so I'm chasing my pension. Uh, and the... All the things that you don't think about when you're a young man uh, and, and are obvious now when you get to uh, um, 65 um, uh, intrigue me yeah. uh, and intrigue me that I could talk to myself as a, as a 20 year old and say, you're not bothered about these things now, but this this is what happens. Yeah. And so uh, to actually be able to speak to somebody uh, um, through the radio and say, these are the things that's coming up uh, and uh, it, it is strategies to to deal with them and uh, ways and i think all, all the shows that i've done i work on that basis of that i'm informing a, a younger version of myself okay uh, and it started off the first one was was about uh, my son it's called a normal family yeah uh, and again what i was trying to do was having uh, um, had 15 years of having an autistic uh, child say yeah. to somebody who's just found out that they've got an autistic child and these might be some of the things that crop up over the next 15 years, you know, uh, is a thought process for you. Did you get much feedback from parents of, of autistic children or, or the autistic community in terms of? Uh, yes, well, well, um, my wife Angela and I wrote a book uh, um, uh, based on our experiences and uh, it became an uh, Amazon bestseller. I should qualify that. Uh, uh, it's an Amazon bestseller in the uh, conditions section. Okay. Uh, um, uh, th- but uh, yeah, I think we got some like seventy-five star reviews uh, of it, Brilliant. and a lot of great um, individual uh, people have come on to me because I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram yeah. and said how much it's helped them uh, deal with their situation. And do, do you know? <sighs> You can have a, 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 a an award, and I, I've got a few awards, uh, and they're great. Sat there, and they look, they look very nice. But when another human being says to you that something's helped them, it's it's better. Uh, I've had uh, some of my poems read out at funerals, uh, and um, the idea that somebody would mark their life with some of your words is a huge compliment. Mm. So it's trying to get past the obvious uh, sort of uh, uh, 
benefits of being in the communication business to the, the more human benefits. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. I guess when you're starting off, you think back to when you're starting off writing poems, etc., and where it's led you in terms of your life, you, you can't predict something like that and, and all these different impacts it has in well, various facets. Well, I don't think anybody starts off writing poems thinking I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't think anybody does. Yeah. Uh, you start off, um, and I'm sure this is probably the same with politics and things like that. You start off because you have a yearning. You have, you have uh, uh, something in you that says, um, I want to communicate, even if only to myself. I want to communicate something. There's something I need to communicate. Yeah. Um, what I've found with every creative person that I've ever met is that they are disconnected with the world uh, and, and were connect, disconnected either as children or in their early uh, teens or adulthood. Um, and that idea of uh, being in the moment, that idea of being at the centre and, and not being self-aware goes. And, and you um, you look at the world as if to say, how do I fit into this? Mm. And then from then onwards, everything's like a jigsaw puzzle of, of trying to understand how you fit into it. And I think a lot of creativity um, uh, is down to that. And I, I think I've worked with lots of people who more or less write the same um, story uh, um, because they're exploring the same issue again and again. Uh, and and uh, I can understand why that's the case, because if something doesn't seem right to you and you're trying to understand it, then you explore it from one way and explore it from another way. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Again, it goes back to what I was saying in terms of it becomes quite therapeutic as a process, you know, figuring I think it things does, out. But I, I, you know, um, funnily enough, my first reaction to that is that, that sounds uh, a, a little demeaning uh, to to the old process. When mm. in actual fact, um, I think every artist, Picasso, uh, Michelangelo, um, it, you could probably say the same for them. And it shouldn't be demeaning. It should actually be, yes, that's part of the raison d'etre, but yeah. it doesn't undermine that it's the greatest art in the world. Yes. So I wanted to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up, Henry. What have you done outside of work? Have you had a few go-tos to relax and unwind and take your mind off work, even though for you it seems like your work is your play to a certain degree? Uh, the, the poetry is, uh, uh, yes, uh, whereas the television is um, uh, is, is a different headspace and uh, um and however much i enjoy it i i wouldn't say it was relaxing it's it's a bit like playing football you, you, yes. know, you, you can play football and enjoy it but it but it takes an effort um i, I like um i like nature uh that sounds a bit bland doesn't it but uh, uh particularly beaches so uh, i've lived by the sea now for uh, uh over 30 years so um uh, i've been brought up in nottingham uh you were probably the furthest distance from any sea uh, in this country. Mm. So um, I find uh, walking um, and sitting um, by the sea and in nature uh, and exploring uh, bits of nature, uh, even Dungeness where I went the other day, which is not the prettiest place. Uh, um, I find that uh, uh, very diverting. And again, it gives you that thing of you seeing the world from a different angle mm. and there's a different language 
uh, to bits of nature. So I've moved from Brighton to uh, to Fairlight. It's a whole new. I, I was I was uh, down walking along a dike uh, uh, the other day, uh, which is called uh, uh, Dim Something uh, Sewer. Uh, which sounds awful, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah it does. So, so uh, but it's beautiful, uh, right. you know, rushes and everything. And and you've got all this, uh, um, like where where we are in uh, the pet level, which is about five minutes away. They've got sunken uh, uh, forests. So under the sea, there's beach and hoak, and 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 there's a there's a seventeenth um, century boat there that uh, that you can see the remains of and so all this um new thought process that i hadn't had before you start thinking about the the, the connotations of an underground or uh, undersea forest yeah uh, and the, the, i think there was uh, they found a, a dinosaur um uh footprint there as well um, which is still there, obviously. It's not, not gone. Uh, um, uh, and so, so, so to, to me, it's, it's, I'm thinking, but I've, I've never, that's, that's, that's not been immediate to me. I've right. known of these things. I've known, yes. you know, somewhere there are these things. Yeah. But they're not, they weren't near enough to me to become in my alignment. And now, if I go, if I go down to the beach, which I'll do this afternoon, yeah. it's in front of me. So it, it, as regards my thought process, it, it becomes part of my thought process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate that from the perspective of surfing. I always remember to look up and look at the landscape facing me. I mean, I should yeah. be facing the waves, but no, no, no. But, but, but you surf in different places. Uh, yes. So if you surfed in Portugal, uh, you would have a different feel. Exactly. So yeah. if you wrote about surfing in Portugal as opposed to surfing off Bristol, yeah, uh, uh, you know, there, you, there's different. Even though it, it's basically you're on the sea, yeah, it's, it's going to feel very different. Yeah, and, and I feel it feels like a privileged point of view because it's not one that everyone gets to see because I'm out there just sitting on that surfboard. So I think I can understand it from that periphery, you know, from my perspective. Yeah. Um, there's there... something quite nice about something quite nice about being on the edge of the land. Yes. Uh, yeah. Again, it's a bit, a bit like it's like you know where Glastonbury whenever he's jumping up and down. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, well, there's no writers jumping up and down. They're all on the side looking looking at people. And I, yeah. I think there's something quite yeah. nice about being on the side of Britain, looking back. Uh, um, you know, it, it sort of gives you a, a perspective. Definitely. Yeah. And that, that outsider's perspective is definitely part of being a writer. I mean, just, just the people watching. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of my favorite pastimes, just sitting in a cafe, just observing people. Yes. Spying, being a nosy bugger. Uh, Henry, are there any books that stand out to you that have had a major impact on or inspired you in some way? Yes. Well, I mentioned Spy Milligan uh, earlier. The yeah. first poetry book I ever bought because I thought it was a comedy book and it turned out to be a poetry book, was Spike Milligan's Small Dreams of a Scorpion. Okay. Uh, and when I uh, read it, uh, um, some of the poems made me cry. Okay. And, and I thought, a man that could be so funny, because he would make me cry laughing. I'd be on a bus reading, uh, you know, a dustbin full of Milligan or something. Yeah. And I would be in tears and my stomach would hurt from, from laughing. And there he was making me cry because of, uh, you know, words on a bit of paper. Yeah. Um, that, that were uh, serious. Um, so that gave me that uh, yearning to want to have both, to want to be able to move people and make people laugh. Yeah. Uh, and there's something about going from one to the other um, that 
makes both powerful. Mm. Uh, um, uh, and that you're not in that midsection. You're 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 making a commitment, and something something about laughing which gives you over to the person that's making you laugh, so that once you're given over to them, then they say something serious. It it, it, it cuts deeper. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, because takes, you're on their side. Yeah, and it takes a certain level of bravery to be that sincere and, and to be open. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, to, be that and open. to be open. Uh, I mean, it comes back to what we were saying at the beginning about um, uh, you know um, uh, being uh, open and accessible to people. And that's not just to collaborate collaborators, but to everybody that's going to see or witness your work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, more recently, um, um, uh, Max Porter's uh, book um, uh, "Grief Is a Thing uh, with Feathers" uh, I, I thought was a brilliant uh, long poem uh, okay. about a man who's lost his wife um, uh, and he's got kids to look after. I thought I thought that was uh, a, a really. Uh, I don't usually like long poems. I I, I sort of get. I sort of get a bit bored halfway through, but I thought that was brilliant. Okay. okay. All right. Great. I will check that out. There was one question I wanted to ask you earlier. And, and the only reason I'm bringing it up is because you're talking about Spike Milligan and having this ability to go from being, you know, funny to serious and talking about serious subject matters. Was there a sort of a challenging transition from writing and doing the performance side of things putting on your funny brain to then handling more of the business side of the industry? Because did you find you had to transition in terms of like different size of your personality or did they sort of just, I don't know, was it more of a fluid thing and you didn't really think about um, it so much? Well, you could say they're both problem solving. Yes. Uh, yeah. If you think about it, uh, I mean, when writing, uh, um, uh, we get to a situation where you, you think of an overall plot yeah. and then uh, each scene you've got to get from A to B uh, in a funny way uh, yeah. and you've got to get your character to do something so you're sort of problem solving by saying how, 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 how can we do that mm. uh, um, and uh, it's a similar sort of brain uh, you know when you're running a business um, you've got to get to the end of the year without going bust yeah uh, um, and hopefully make something that's worth making um, Steve and I uh, had one rule uh, in that uh, we would only make things that we would watch ourselves there's no way we'd, we'd make something and say yeah we don't like it but that's for others we we had to like it yeah. to, to be able to make it because you can't make it better if you don't like it in the first place yeah I don't know how you would judge to, to make it better. So I would say every every show that we made, uh, um, you know, was one I liked and uh, uh, a lot of them that I, that I love. Is there, I mean, I don't know if this is an unfair question. Did you have a, a favourite standout show that you made? Well, uh, uh, my wife's film, uh, uh, Snowcake, with Sigourney Weaver and uh, uh, Alan Rickman, okay. uh, because it's essentially about my son. Uh, okay. uh, is a standout. Uh, it uh, opened the Berlin Film Festival, and I got to uh, stand next to Sigourney Weaver and light a cigarette <laughs> with one of them box matches thing. So, from a lad from a council estate being stood in Berlin, lighting Sigourney Weaver's cigarette, it was it was like I was in the movies. Yeah, so wow. that, that was that was rather beautiful, and, and uh, she is uh, you know sort of world class, uh, you know sort of uh, film royalty, yeah. as, as was uh, Alan Rickman, uh, sadly now departed. Yeah. Um, beyond my wife's, uh, I would say 
Uh, I loved working with Julia Davis uh, and uh, all her shows. Um, she put so much work into them, and she um, the, the her vision for comedy and uh, her um, pushing the boundaries was so exciting to work on. It was like a roller coaster ride, uh, right. and trying to trying to get a vision actually onto the screen um, uh, intact without diluting it um, was um, uh, was a real challenge. And I, I, I love that. And I, I love the shows that we made together. Yeah, they all had sort of a slightly dark tone to them, which just, just worked for her so well. They, they, well, yes, I, I don't think she's going to do anything light and frothy. No, uh, um, uh, uh, but I, 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 I you know, uh, I say the, the 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 mixture of comedy and seriousness. Yeah, um, brilliant. I, I brilliant. think uh, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there were in a way visual poems uh, that she was uh, that she was doing uh, wow. with her style and uh, you know and her vocabulary and uh, you know uh, the themes that she wanted to explore. Um, but I think she did them so passionately with all her. Uh, Sensors. Yeah. That, um, what we actually ended up with um, were works of art. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Um, you've come across so many different types of talent, and you've seen those that have gone to maybe the next stage and been what is deemed to be successful, as opposed to others who might not have necessarily progressed to that next level. Yeah. From your point of view, is there something that specifically to attribute to a certain personality type that does succeed and, and ends up making the show or ends up being a successful stand-up as opposed to somebody who might not necessarily progress to that next level? Or do you think a lot of it is just deemed down to luck? Uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting. Uh, um, uh, uh, Angela and I were talking the other day about um, uh, look by design. Okay. Uh, uh, which is an interesting concept, isn't it? Uh, um, I, I think I think you can help look uh, um, and help uh, um, opportunities and yeah. help uh, make the most of those opportunities. Um, of the people I've worked with, and I've worked with some very very funny people that yeah. never made it in television, but were uh, if uh, Steve and myself and Frank Skinner and all the people that that, that uh, made it in television, if they went on after this person, they would struggle because this person's so funny. Wow. Uh, and uh, they're, 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 I'm not going to. Uh, well, I will name a few names there. Uh, uh, so Bob Dillinger uh, in Manchester was one of those people, and uh, Kev Cisse. Uh, no relation to Lemsisse, uh, uh, was one of those people that was so funny. But, and, and I don't know why they didn't make it in television. They might be, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, reasons that I don't know of. Um, but I do uh, know of the people that um, that did make it, that um, stamina is very uh, uh, much to the core. You've, you've got to be able to uh, go uh, to Aberdeen for 30 quid. Right, and play to thirteen people, mm. and do your best, and come back, and then do it again tomorrow, mm. uh, and and know that that when you're doing that, that's part of the process that will get you to doing the, the stadium gig or doing the television series or doing the 
the Hollywood film that you you've got to do that and you've got to keep doing that. So so stamina and perseverance. Um, obviously, uh, some degree of originality, uh, um, and you don't necessarily. Um, uh, have to be that original, but it has to have uh, um, a, a sense of start with. You have to have a sense of yourself. There, I think, when we all start off, um, we all uh, look to the previous generations, and and we're probably, a, you know, like me, I might be a, a, a wanting to be a little bit uh, Jack Benny. Never was, but uh, uh, wanting to be, wanting to be a little bit Spike Milligan. And then you find what works for you, what you're yeah. capable of. And um, if you know fairly early on what it is that you do well, uh, that can help. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, take Steve. So Steve did funny voices uh, and he could have been the next Mike Yarwood, but he hated the idea of being the next Mike Yarwood. He wanted to be the next Peter Sellers. Mm. So he set out his stall and he said, no, I'm not going to do, because uh, he did all loads of voices for Spit and Image. And he says, I'm going to do characters. And so he started doing Paul Calf and Alan Partridge and all these things. Uh, and then he's got into Hollywood films. Um, but that's because he made that decision that I, this is the way I want to go. And uh, so he knew in his mind what he did and what he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it could be it could have earned a lot of money uh, uh, being a Mike Yarwood. But, you know, it wouldn't have been as, as happy. Yeah. So having a plan, being focused and uh, carrying that out and being fully committed yeah, uh, having a sort of a, a confidence in yourself, I'm sure helps. Uh, although um, it might surprise you how uh, um, unconfident uh, a lot of confident people are uh, yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, um, a lot of people are essentially shy, and you, you know, part of the performance thing is is to uh, well, it won't because you're a performer. Uh, is is about putting on another persona. And mm. um, one of the reasons I called myself Henry Normal. Uh, is that um, my real name, Peter Carroll, um, he'd not done anything particularly brilliant up to that point in time. I was hoping Henry Normal might surpass him. Right. Uh, and so you put on this uh, um, uniform, if you like, this this costume, yeah. uh, um, this persona, uh, um, and it allows you uh, a fresh start and it allows you to, to uh, be in a way that you might not be once you take off the uh, the name and the uniform and you carry on with the rest of your life yeah you're almost sort of unshackled by the burdens of your of your past or who who you deem yourself to be you can be someone yes, you see, you. You see, henry normal has never been turned down by beautiful women uh, right, right. Um, but, but peter carroll has <laughs> many times <laughs> All right. Okay. I might have to to think about this in more, more detail. <laughs> but there, 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 there is, I'm, I'm sure if you talk to anybody that's uh, changed the name or anybody that's uh, that um, uh, whose performance on stage, I mean, you, you think of every, everybody from Alice Cooper uh, uh, was very different on stage to, to off stage, and Meatloaf who just uh, just died. I mean, yeah. when he got on the stage, I mean, he was a whirlwind. Yeah. But he made that choice. He said, "I'm going to be a whirlwind on stage," and 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 he he, he did that. And obviously, you know, meatloafs. He wasn't born meatloaf, was he? he no, his no. mom didn't say, "I'm going to call this little baby meatloaf." Yeah, I mean, I just love this dish so much. I've got to dedicate it to my firstborn. Yeah, but he's uh, he's uh, you know that. So so there's there's something about that. Um, uh, Steve, uh, I remember saying to me. It's very difficult to please everybody. 
So if you think about it, uh, uh, Jesus was killed, uh, uh, even though he was trying to please everybody. Gandhi uh, was killed, even though he was trying to please everybody. And Martin Luther King was was killed. So uh, it, trying to please everybody is never going to work. Mm. So uh, on certain occasions, you have to decide what it is you want. Uh, and there's a certain ruthlessness in accepting and understanding that, that I, I think probably a lot of uh, um, stars have. Uh, and you might call it selfishness, or you might just uh, say that you have to make a decision. And, uh, you know, uh, with that decision, you have to be true to yourself. Yeah, 100%. That, that definitely seems like a recognizable trait in a, in a lot of successful entertainers, for sure, and beyond. Final question I'm going to ask you, Henry, is what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Um, I think with balance, I think you've got to realize that um, balance is not uh, something you can sustain minute to minute. Uh, that um, you know the 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 twos and fro's of a day, the twos and fro's of a week, the twos and fro's of a month, even the twos and fro's of a year, that you're going to have periods that uh, are one way and periods that are another way. So um, you've got to think of balance in in a long term sense rather than a short term sense. Uh, and, and so um, the uh, if you take uh, my last couple of months, so I've moved house, so I've been doing lots of DIY, um, and um, th- I know that this period is going to be that's what I'm going to have to do in order to get the house uh, sufficiently uh, uh, running that I don't have to worry about in the in the future, and then mm. hopefully because uh, I'm touring next month, I'll do the touring, and then the month after. Um, you know, it'll be nice and sunny, hopefully. So we might have a bit of time off and spend that uh, as, a, as a family. So as I say, um, uh, not necessarily the balance in a day, uh, but the balance in an overall sense um, is worth realising that, um, you know, it, that's what you're striving for. Um, and uh, some bits you have to sacrifice uh, and some bits you can allow yourself to enjoy yourself is a concept yeah wow give that one a go brilliant all right that's a really fantastic answer thank you where is best for people to keep up with what you're up to and see your live dates etc is it your website uh well uh now i don't update the website very often uh, okay. um but the uh, i i post uh, almost every day on uh, facebook twitter and uh instagram i think facebook is the easiest for me to post enough information to be useful and for people to interact i I interact with quite a few people on on facebook and uh you know if if you post something i always read it uh i'll either put a like or i'll I'll, I'll write a comment on it so and uh, you can message people on facebook as well which is which is quite good um twitter's uh uh, all right i've not had any trolls so far um but it is limiting with the amount of words yes yeah, especially for a poet. Yes, well, that, that's that's true. So it's uh, it's usually the short ditches I put, yeah. uh, put on okay. there. Uh, whereas if you want something more substantial, uh, then uh, um, uh, Instagram and, uh, and Facebook. I have a rule with Instagram. I only put uh, photos on that I've taken. Okay. Uh, um, so um, anything you see on there is is, is a photo that I've mm. taken or, or someone's taken of me. Um, uh, you know, and 
I, I like it's like you're talking about balance. I like to change it about a bit so that all the different aspects of what you do. So it's not just about me plugging what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. um, I, I like uh, if I if I write a poem today. If I'm if I'm going down the beach. If I write a poem today. For, uh, for no other reason than I've written it, I shall put it on Facebook, and yeah. uh, you know you can tell me if you like it or you know if you recognise anything about it. Great, and that'll be at Henry Normal. Is your that's uh, yeah Henry Normal? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, uh, Twitter's Henry Normal Poet. Okay, and I think Instagram's Henry Normal Poet. Great. Well, I'll add that all to the show notes so people can uh, go and take a look. Henry, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.